to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. The president is in a tough spot. He's damned if he does, and damned if he doesn't. But he is clearly not deterred. Take Iran, for example. What is Iran thinking? Why in the world does Iran want to start another war? And why does it want to start a war with us? The recent attacks on international shipping in the Gulf of Oman were called by many analysts tests or warnings or messages. I would call them none of the above. I would call them the opening shots of a new war. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. As I mentioned on the show last week, some military analysts have said that we need to forget the idea that these attacks were intended to be a message, but not actually to sink the ships. And I explained that this was because the limpet mines that were used on the tankers were designed to penetrate steel hulls and disable or sink ships. Penetrate steel hulls. Disable or sink ships. And that's the point. The two most recent attacks on the front Altair, which was loaded with naphtha, and the Kokuka Courageous, which was carrying methanol, both highly flammable cargo, were each attacked by multiple limpet mines which were attached magnetically to their hulls. The explosion on the front altar caused a fire on board that got out of control so quickly that it gave the crew no other option than to jump overboard. So some analysts think that maybe these attacks may have been failed efforts to set off massive explosions and sink both ships. And that's some message. Using explosive charges to attack ships that are loaded with highly flammable chemicals is not a halfway measure. To put it bluntly, this looks more like an act of war that failed than a warning or a message. Now, until last week, Iran had attacked only ships that were owned by countries like Norway, the United Arab Emirates, and Japan. But then, this past week, Iran upped the ante. They shot down a U.S. Navy Global Hawk drone. That's a very large unmanned drone with a wingspan larger than a Boeing 737 jetliner and a profile not unlike a P-8 spy plane. There were no military personnel on board, of course, because it was a drone. But there was a P-8 spy plane flying in the area, and it's not clear that Iran knew that at the time, although they clearly do now. The next day, Iran's Fars News Agency reported that the Brigadier General, who is the commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Aerospace Force, said that a U.S. P-8, quote, was also violating our airspace, and we could have downed it too, unquote. That would have killed the Americans on board, he said, but they chose instead to shoot down only the unmanned U.S. Navy drone, 
in order to avoid the possibility of all-out war. Maybe. But you know what? I doubt it. Iran does not have a particularly good record of humanitarian concerns, and it seems to be doing everything possible to start a war. So if they made such a decision, it was no doubt more for strategic military purposes than humanitarian ones. Okay, regardless, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, made the most of their accomplishment and celebrated the announcement that they had downed a U.S. drone. An IRGC statement to Fars News explained that they had tracked the drone for 14 minutes from the southern part of the Persian Gulf as it flew toward the Iranian port town of Jask, where the Iranian Navy has a base that is strategically placed to control the Strait of Hormuz. The Iranians said that the drone was carrying out an espionage mission and that when it entered Iran's territory, it was targeted and, quote, defeated, unquote, by the IRGC. It is a $200 million giant, they crowed. In the meantime, the Federal Aviation Administration sent a notice to airmen. It's called a NOTAM which prohibits all U.S. aircraft from flying over Iran-controlled territory in the area of the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman because they face a risk of being misidentified as the tensions between the U.S. and Iran continue to intensify. U.S. passenger aircraft don't generally fly in this area, but long-haul flights from the U.S. by foreign airlines and flights from Europe that are heading to India and Southeast Asia they do, and they do it in large numbers. So the stakes are high, and the tensions in the region are rising. President Trump was right to order the response attack to stand down. It was a close call because planes were already in the air, but he said, stand down, and they did. It was the right call for many reasons, tactical, strategic, and political. These attacks have raised questions about the level of Iran's air defense technology. On June 10th, Iran brought out its new air defense system called the Khordad-15, which has a 47-mile range. Iran says that this was the type of missile that was used to take down the drone. The Global Hawk provides real-time intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions over large areas of ocean and coastal regions. The global hawks that are now in use are equipped with a sophisticated range of, of electro-optical radar and electronic intelligence gathering systems. This means that the plane can spy from a high altitude from the edge of an area to be surveilled and can peer into a targeted country from the side. The U.S. said that it was flying over international waters when it was brought down. Calculations based on different flight paths mean that Iran's missile might have had to travel up to 25 miles to hit it. This tells us something about Iran's defensive capabilities. Iran has warned the U.S. and our allies, including Israel and Saudi Arabia, of the possibility of a looming conflict. They said, don't threaten an Iranian. On Thursday, when it downed our drone, it made that warning clear. The president said 
that the cost of 150 Iranian lives on the ground was too high a price to pay for the downing of an unmanned drone. That was as good a reason as any, because any attack on Iranian military assets on the ground, however justified, could well trigger a much larger conflict and open up a new front that would likely bring Russia and others into the battle. So after making the decision, the president tweeted that the military action was not, quote, proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. I'm in no hurry, he said. Our military is rebuilt, new, and ready to go, by far the best in the world. Sanctions are biting, and more added last night. Iran can never have nuclear weapons, not against the USA, not against the world, unquote. And even as the hours passed, more news trickled out. And it gets more interesting all the time, because the president did not stand down completely. He only halted the air attack and changed his tactics. He authorized another kind of attack that did not involve planes and missiles. It involved computers, and it was extremely effective. The president made it clear that he had not called off the planned strike on Iran. He said in a tweet, Quote, I never called the strike against Iran back, as people are incorrectly reporting. I stopped it from going forward at this time, unquote. Okay, semantics, you may say, but the president is playing a long game. And he was very clear when he told NBC News over the weekend that he doesn't want war with Iran. But if it comes, there will be, quote, obliteration like you've never seen before, unquote. So instead of a military attack on Iran, which the president put on hold, the U.S. carried out a series of cyber attacks, which were aimed at both acquiring confirming intelligence and disabling IRGC's command and control, its mission sites, and its satellites. And, as I said, it was very effective. Nevertheless, Iran has denied that the U.S. cyber attacks have been successful, in fact, they said that no cyber attack it has ever been successful. Iran's telecommunication minister tweeted that although America is making what he called a lot of effort, there was no successful attack carried out against Iran. He said, we foiled last year not one attack, but 33 million attacks. But according to our sources, the attack crippled computers and missile launching sites. It seems to be a clear pattern that whatever Iran is accused of, even in the face of significant evidence, they deny it. According to our sources, the U.S. targeted Iranian military computers that are used to control rocket and missile launches and disabled the computers and networks used by the Iranian intelligence forces to operate them. They also were reported to have blinded an Iranian satellite that was feeding intelligence to them about the activities of U.S. assets right here on Earth. And then he did something else. He ordered new sanctions against Iran, and this time he didn't pull any punches. He said that the Ayatollah Khamenei is, quote, ultimately responsible, unquote, for Iran's actions and placed sanctions directly on him. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin announced that the U.S. will also target 
the assets of senior military leaders responsible for threatening to close down the Strait of Hormuz, and the commander of Iran's Air Force, who Mnuchin said was responsible for shooting down the American drone over international waters. He said, quote, These measures represent a strong and proportionate response to Iran's increasingly provocative actions, unquote. The move is particularly egregious to the Iranian leadership because the Ayatollah represents the manifestation of Allah, and an attack on him may be interpreted as an attack on his honor and on the honor of Islam itself. Now, remember at the beginning of the program I asked you this? Why in the world does Iran want to start another war? And why does it want to start a war with us? Well, consider this. There has been a suggestion that Iran is quite seriously considering a policy of mutually assured destruction, which suggests that it would find the death of thousands, even millions of its own people, acceptable if it also ensured the deaths of millions of Americans as well. And why is that? Iran is ruled by religious zealots. Their worldview is governed by a belief that was expressed very clearly by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the leader of this revolution. He said, I am decisively announcing to the world that if the world devourers, that's us infidels, wish to stand against our religion, we will stand against their whole world and will not cease until the annihilation of all of them. Either we all become free, or we will go to the greater freedom, which is martyrdom. Either we shake one another's hand in joy at the victory of Islam in the world, or all of us will turn to eternal life and martyrdom. In both cases, victory and success are ours. According to the Ayatollah, they can't lose, so they have nothing to lose. And we, who treasure freedom, which does not include martyrdom, and those among us who make international policy, would be wise to consider that the motives of the Iranian government may not be simply to maintain or expand their power, as it is frequently in the West, but to prepare for the coming of the 12th Imam and to conquer the world for Islam. And as the Ayatollah explained, it doesn't matter if the goal is achieved through conquest or through martyrdom. American policymakers make a serious mistake if they attribute to the enemies of our country the same motivations as we have ourselves. That idea that we are all driven by the same goals and desires, by the quest for power or riches or comfort or love, that's all completely false and has led our nation astray many times in the past. It's high time that we realize that the government of Iran is driven by ideology that is completely foreign to us. And if those who craft our foreign policy simply can't wrap their heads around what truly drives them, then we are in real trouble. As I have said, the Iranian leadership is driven by a radical religious ideology and it is something quite difficult for our leaders to understand. But if the mullahs in Iran are preparing for the coming of the Mahdi, they may be prepared to sacrifice many of their people in a country with 82 million people. 
and more than that, because they believe that a period of chaos and war will precede his coming, and they may be willing to hasten his coming with an attack on America or Israel. And for Iran, the coming war that must precede the coming of the Mahdi, that's a holy war. The outcome is victory or martyrdom, and they may not care which, according to the religious leadership of Iran, if they are among the faithful. So if whether they live or die is less important than the fulfillment of ancient prophecy that establishes Islam as the religion of the world, we need to worry about what they will do next. As events in the Middle East continue to unfold, we need to seriously consider the nature of the war we will be fighting and stop it before we lose control completely. President Donald Trump is a force to be reckoned with. He doesn't want war, but he will not run away from it either, not when America is threatened and attacked. He didn't start this war, but he will stop it if there is any way that he can. So now we'll take a short break, but don't go away because I'll be right back with a story about the woman who is probably one of the most dangerous people in Congress today. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. You know, I want to talk to you about one of the people I think is the most dangerous member of Congress. Her name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. As a freshman congresswoman, she didn't take the time to do what freshman Congress people have always done for a couple of hundred years. They came to Congress as freshmen, and in those first weeks and months, they listened and learned. They learned how Congress is supposed to work and where they were best going to be able to make their mark. Ocasio-Cortez is dangerous because she talks without listening, and she came into Congress with guns blazing taking aim at everything she didn't like, feathering her own nest with her new huge salary, and talking about how the rest of us will just have to suck it up and get with the program with her Green New Deal, which she hatched right out of the box. And she's dangerous because she grabs power that she hasn't earned and is audacious enough to wield it without authority and certainly without wisdom. What Ocasio-Cortez doesn't know or understand would fill volumes. So it should come as no surprise that she has disgraced herself again with an ignorant reference to the Holocaust that disrespected 
millions of people. This past week, I wrote an article, you can read it on AmericaOutloud.com, about the uninformed and outrageously uneducated comments made by Ocasio-Cortez when she compared the internment camps on our southern border with Nazi concentration camps. And in case there was any doubt that she was talking about Nazi concentration camps, she referenced the phrase, never again, to refer to the treatment of the illegal immigrants who are being housed temporarily on our southern border. There are so many reasons why this analogy is not only false, but deeply offensive to those who truly understand what that reference really means. Although there are people, like Ocasio-Cortez, who feel knowledgeable when they compare Nazi concentration camps to prisons or internment centers in modern society, the fact is that they are ill-informed and deeply, deeply offensive. Nazi concentration camps, unlike present-day prisons and internment camps, did not have to worry about oversight or judicial review. The Nazis who ran the camps were free from oversight by the German courts who might, and I stress might, otherwise have judged their heinous activities. The camps imprisoned people for indeterminate periods of time, people whom the Nazis unilaterally decided were a security threat or simply undesirable. These prisoners provided a free and obedient workforce for the Nazis, who used the camps to eliminate individuals and entire targeted populations by murder, by shooting, by hanging, and ultimately by mass murder, away from the scrutiny of both the public and the justice system such as it was. Before the Second World War, there were nine and a half million Jews living in Europe. They were, at least they thought they were, well integrated into European society. They were professionals, doctors, lawyers, scientists, merchants, teachers, artists, musicians, actors, writers, and much more. They contributed to the science of the times as well as to the arts and letters. And because they felt so well integrated into European society, they didn't understand just how vulnerable they really were. But by the end of the war in 1945, two-thirds of them, six million men, women, teenagers and small children, even little babies, were statistics, horribly murdered by the Nazi killing machine. The first indication of Hitler's plans for the mass murder that he later called the final solution for the Jews of Europe came in 1922 when he told journalist Josef Held, quote, Once I really am in power, my first and foremost task will be the annihilation of the Jews, unquote. The first concentration camp was Dachau, which was opened in 1932. It started out as a camp for political prisoners, but by the time the war ended, it was one of the most notorious death camps in Europe. Between 1933 and 1945, the Nazis and their allies established and operated more than 42,000 concentration camps, locked ghettos, 
and other sites for imprisoning the people Hitler didn't like. They used these sites for a number of purposes, including forced labor, detention of so-called enemies of the state, and for mass murder. In 1941, Josef Goebbels wrote in his diary, quote, with respect of the Jewish question, the Führer has decided to make a clean sweep, unquote. And the mass murders began in earnest. But even before what Hitler called the final solution was fully implemented, thousands of Jews had already been murdered in pogroms and the ghettos and on the streets of European cities with the full encouragement of the Nazis. Once the roundup of Jews began in earnest, Jews were ripped from their homes because they were Jews and brought to the concentration camps in cattle cars. There were no windows. There was very little air. They were packed so tightly that the people inside could not sit down. And they traveled like this for hours or days without food or water or sanitation until they reached the concentration camps. Those who survived the trip were forced to live in the camps under disgusting, inhuman conditions, sleeping in lice-filled beds, two or three to a bunk, eating gruel and watery soup when they could get it, instead of adequate food, no medicine, and certainly no lawyers. Then, in late 1939, the Nazis began to experiment with poison gas. At first, though, they experimented with patients who had mental and physical disabilities, whom they deemed unworthy of life in what they euphemistically called a euthanasia program. Then two years later, in 1941, the Nazis developed the gas chamber to murder Jews in wholesale murder machines. Mass murder was much more efficient that way, don't you know? The gas chambers became the Nazis' primary weapon for the mass murder of Europe's Jews. When the Jews were first brought in the cattle cars into the Nazi concentration camps, those who had survived went through a process called selexia. They were separated from each other, the husbands from their wives, mothers from their children, brothers from their sisters. Those who were considered strong enough to work went one way. The others, the women, the elderly, the young children, they went another way. They were stripped naked, their heads were shaved, and they were walked directly into the gas chambers. One witness, after observing the gassing of Jewish victims, wrote in his diary in 1942, quote, Dante's Inferno seems to me almost a comedy compared to this. They don't call Auschwitz the camp of annihilation for nothing, unquote. The other prisoners, the ones who lived and were not murdered outright, including children who were old enough to work, were put to hard labor, and they were expendable. They were worked until exhaustion, and if they faltered, they were shot. And sometimes they were just shot or hanged for the amusement of the guards. And some were set aside for medical experimentation that the Nazis performed on unwilling Jews, horrible experiments, often without anesthesia, to see how much torment the human body could withstand. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, take note. This is what a concentration camp was like. 
Are any of those things happening in the U.S. internment camps on our border? You can bet your life they are not. Now, maybe Ocasio-Cortez thinks that the term concentration camp can have more than one interpretation. Well, if you're being literal to a fault, maybe. The Nazis, who were fastidious record keepers, did in fact distinguish between concentration camps and extermination camps. But the rest of the world did not. And the term concentration camp became synonymous with the killing camps of the Nazi regime. And speaking, by the way, of concentration camps, a term AOC uses so inappropriately and defends so ferociously, here's a thought. Words that may once have been generic can acquire special and specific meanings which are applied to them by history because of extraordinary circumstances. The word ghetto, for example, has been appropriated by the black community, but it once referred only to the small, walled communities in Europe in which Jews were forced to live by their Christian rulers, first in Italy, then in walled cities throughout Europe, and finally by the Nazis. Now, when Ocasio-Cortez used that term, concentration camp, I don't know where she thinks it came from. That term wasn't invented by the Nazis. It was first coined in 1897 in Cuba, where such camps were for people who were considered undesirable and where they could be confined in one place, and the term was used generically until the Nazis appropriated it. It became synonymous with the death camps and specifically with the mass murder of European Jews. So when Ocasio-Cortez talks so blithely about the so-called concentration camps on our southern border, with an undisguised reference to the Nazi camps, it's clear she has no clue about the history to which she is alluding. Now I understand that the president of Austria was so outraged by Ocasio-Cortez's remarks that he invited the congresswoman to visit Auschwitz, the most notorious of the concentration camps, so that she could see with her own eyes what I am telling you now. That would be a useful visit, and she might learn something important about what horrifying things some human beings are willing to do to other human beings. And there is an extraordinary Holocaust museum complex in Israel, in Jerusalem, called Yad Vashem, which means the hand of God, where you can see the progression of Nazi rule and the infliction of pure evil on the Jewish population of Europe. But you know, she doesn't have to go to Austria or even to Israel to learn about the Holocaust. There are excellent Holocaust museums right here in the United States where she can see for herself what really happened. There are several excellent Holocaust memorial museums in her own home state of New York, including one in Manhattan and one in the Bronx, which I'll bet she never visited. And now that she lives in Washington, D.C., there is an extraordinary museum right in that city. It's called the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Had she ever visited that one before she spoke so irreverently about the internment camps on our southern border? She would never have referred to them in a comparison with the horrors of the Holocaust. But maybe she can learn. That museum, which opened in 1993, has had nearly 40 million visitors since then. And do you know, 
Fewer than 10% of those visitors were Jewish. In addition to thousands of documents, photographs, and testimonies from survivors, there are nearly 13,000 artifacts from the war and from the camps. These bits and pieces are examples of all that remain from the Holocaust and its victims. But they help us to understand the horrors of what the Jewish people were forced to experience during those terrible years. Museum researchers have identified 42,500 ghettos and concentration camps that were built by the Nazis throughout German-controlled areas of Europe from 1933 to 1945. Ocasio-Cortez may be pleased to know that the museum has its own YouTube channel and its own Facebook page, and guess what? It even has its own Twitter account. So to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I would like to say this. Please just stop justifying your use of words that have such horrendous connotations and that strike at the hearts of millions of Jews around the world. There is no justification for them. There is no genocide going on at the U.S.-Mexican border. The camps that you inaccurately refer to as concentration camps are internment camps. No one is being systematically murdered there, and compared to the camps that were created under the Nazis throughout Europe in the last century, these internment camps are like country clubs. You wrote in your tweet, the U.S. is running concentration camps on our southern border, and that is exactly what they are. Never again means something. We need to do something about it. Unquote. Yes, Congresswoman, never again does mean something but it does not mean what you think it means. It refers specifically to the genocide of Jews by the Nazis, and it was the reason for the creation, finally, of the State of Israel in 1948. And just so you know, never again refers to the State of Israel, which stands forever ready to ensure that the genocide of the Jewish people will never happen again. There was only one Holocaust, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, and it doesn't belong to you, so that you can appropriate it for the semantic games that you play that help you to garner headlines every day. That unthinkable crime against humanity that tore an entire people to pieces still sears the heart with pain that never ends. You do not have the right to trivialize the horrific experiences of an entire people who still bear the scars of that pain and the loss that you can never comprehend. The role of a congressman is not to offend, but to legislate. So stop pretending that you know everything about everything. You don't. None of us do. But you can do your job, legislate, and maybe if you stop talking for just a moment, you may actually learn something. And speaking of Israel, there is something very interesting going on in the Middle East this week that is all about Israel and the possibility, however remote, of a peace agreement for the region. I'll be talking more about the conference in Manama, Bahrain in just a little bit. This meeting, they call it a workshop, 
is a first of its kind, and although it won't be attended by the principals because the Palestinians have refused to come and the Israelis are waiting to see what will happen next, to be perfectly frank, there are limited expectations. But it's at least a beginning, and they say that the longest journey begins with a single small step. Okay, we're going to take another short break, but we'll be right back to talk to you about a new Middle East peace plan. Will it work? Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm going to ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's www.thewoundedblue.org. That is the website for the organization that is the National Association for Injured and Disabled Police Officers. It is a support organization for these men and women who have given so much in the line of duty. We desperately need your help to raise money to uh, get this movement going. And uh, if you are a GoFundMe-er, go to GoFundMe, look up The Wounded Blue, and you can give there as well. But check it out, please, and also check out our film, The Wounded Blue, on Amazon.com. The first part of Donald Trump's long-awaited peace plan for the Middle East, what he called the deal of the century, has now been released. The economic part of the plan was posted on the White House website on Saturday, two days before a conference was scheduled to begin to discuss it. They called it an international workshop. It was held in Manama, Bahrain, on the issue of peace in the Middle East. And the specific purpose of the meeting was to discuss this plan. The president called it Peace to Prosperity, a new vision for the Palestinian people and the broader Middle East. And it is the first part of his plan, the economic portion, that is going to be discussed. From the beginning, there were several things that made critics question the value of this meeting, not the least of which was the fact that neither the Palestinians nor the Israelis sent a delegation to Manama to attend. But some of the people who did attend included Saudi Arabia's finance minister, Mohammed al-Jadan, who headed the Saudi delegation. And there were representatives of other wealthy Gulf states as well, including the UAE, and Mediterranean countries such as Morocco. Even before the meeting began, the Bahraini foreign minister made it clear that his country was committed to supporting the Palestinian economy, quote, in bilateral and international forums, unquote, and that the conference was designated to empower the Palestinian people through developing their abilities and enhancing their resources, unquote. Jared Kushner senior advisor to Donald Trump and his son-in-law, chaired the meeting and opened it by saying that, quote, agreeing on an economic pathway forward is a necessary precondition for peace, unquote. 
But he made it clear that the prosperity of the Palestinians will only be possible, only if there is also a fair political solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. His message to the Palestinian people was this. President Trump and this administration have not given up on you. Unquote. In a pre-conference interview with the Arab news network Al Jazeera, before he left Washington, Kushner referred to the great divide between the Arab position on the Middle East and the Israeli position. He said, quote, I think we all have to recognize that if there ever is a deal, it will be somewhere between the Arab Peace Initiative and the Israeli position, unquote. So even without the attendance of official representatives of the Israeli and Palestinian governments, the conference was an historical undertaking. Officials and business people from the U.S., Israel, and several Arab states all came together to discuss face-to-face -face the economic part of President Trump's peace plan. In the Middle East, that is historic. So, here's a brief overview of the plan. It proposes an infusion of $50 billion into the region, which would fund 179 infrastructure and business projects, and $28 billion of this would go to the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The idea is that $50 billion in capital investments would be infused into the region over a 10-year period. Investments would be made into the Palestinian, Jordanian, Egyptian, and Lebanese economies, and they would be expected to lead the way to cooperation and raise the standard of living for everyone. Most of all, the idea is that through economic cooperation, peace could be achieved. The idea is a good one. In fact, the concept is an excellent one. And it might work in some other parts of the world, in Europe, for example. But it is not likely to work here. Although I support any initiative that would stimulate an effort for finding peace in the Middle East, I have seen so many of these efforts fail largely because they do not address the core issues that keep the region in turmoil. I would therefore call this a $50 billion miscalculation. It was designed to build the Palestinian economy and vastly improve the lives of the Palestinians. But here's the problem. Throwing money at the Palestinians will not accomplish peace. It's been tried before with billions of dollars from international sources. And it has never worked for a number of reasons. But two of the most important reasons are these. One, the Palestinians' conflict with Israel is not based on economics. And it's not based on a wish for a better life for its people. It is based on an ideology that is grounded in basic Islam 101. And on the idea that the entire land of Israel belongs to the Palestinians. And there is no substitute for total possession. Period. The overarching goal of the Palestinians is the total destruction of the state of Israel and what they call the return of the Palestinian people to what is now the entire area of Israel. This is written in the Hamas Charter. This is their goal. And it has also been reflected in the words of Mahmoud Abbas 
throughout his long career. And there's a second reason why this expensive solution will not work. Because the so-called leaders of the Palestinian people do not only not want peace, they also want to keep their own people in relative poverty while they enrich themselves. That is not just conjecture or what some would call racial bias. It's borne out by history and by the facts on the ground. Let me explain. There are two geographical groups of people who call themselves Palestinians. There's the group that lives in the West Bank in what the Israelis call Judea and Samaria, which are their biblical names. And these Palestinians live under the rule of the Palestinian Authority, or the PA, or Fatah, which is headed by Mahmoud Abbas. Then there is the second group, the people who live in Gaza under the rule of Hamas. That's a terrorist organization founded by the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood in 1987 and ruled by Ismail Haniya. In both cases, over the last decades, both governments have received billions of dollars of humanitarian and economic aid. In December 2007, 87 countries and organizations from around the world met to discuss the plight of the Palestinians, and in the end, they decided to provide some $7.4 billion over a three-year period to the Palestinian Authority, the PA. Now, that was far more money than had ever been given to the Palestinians by either the U.S. or any European country before this. The attendees justified the huge amount as a way of giving immediate support to the Palestinians, and it was also intended as an incentive for further efforts on the part of the Palestinians for a peaceful coexistence with Israel. Right. Unfortunately, the subject of the unintended consequences that had been seen previously following earlier large infusions of cash, that subject never came up, although it could have been easily observed by a simple look at past history. That was a serious oversight because over time there has been a clear correlation in this part of the world between the receipt of foreign aid and the rise of incidents of terrorism. That is not to say that the actual aid causes terrorism, no. But there is a lot of evidence, based on history, that suggests that dropping a huge amount of money on an already corrupt Palestinian government, well known for their culture of corruption and fiscal mismanagement, encourages the financial support for terrorism. We've seen it with Fatah, and we've seen it with Hamas. And it has always had deadly and devastating consequences for both Israelis and Palestinians. Over the years, the leadership of the Palestinians has shown very little inclination to lead in the area of policy and practical state building, and certainly has been lacking in the area of critical thinking that is essential in the strategic planning for a flourishing economy. And more than that, the Palestinians have rejected multiple offers of peace with the Israelis, including one offer to Yasser Arafat that included 95% of what he had asked for, and another one that Abbas also refused. Arafat was accused of, quote, never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity, unquote. But the truth is that he did it intentionally, and Abbas, who became president after Arafat's death, has done the same thing. Abbas has admitted that he turned down an Israeli offer for a Palestinian state on nearly 95% of the West Bank. In September 2008, 
Then Prime Minister Ehud Olmert gave him a map that delineated the borders of the proposed PA state, for which Israel would annex 6.3% of the West Bank and compensate the Palestinians with 5.8%, which would be taken from pre-1967 Israeli territory. But Abbas rejected the offer out of hand. Instead, he insisted on the exact June 1967 borders, those borders that existed before the Six-Day War, in which Israel acquired the West Bank from Jordan, Gaza from Egypt, and the Golan Heights from Syria, after all three countries had attacked Israel, nearly simultaneously. Abbas also denied that Omer had ever given him a map of the proposal, and said he couldn't sign it without seeing it. He also said that, anyway, he wasn't an expert on maps. But three years later, Abbas said that he had made a counteroffer to let Israel annex 1.9% of the West Bank. The story that he tells about this offer changes every time he talks about it, so it is difficult to believe whatever he says or know from him exactly what happened. In any case, instead of applying the billions of dollars that the PA has received in international aid to the actual process of building a strong and vibrant economy, Their leaders have enriched themselves and their families at the expense of the people they were supposed to serve. Mahmoud Abbas himself is said to have a net worth of $100 million. And where did all this wealth come from? Abbas's mentor was Yasser Arafat, who was himself accused of embezzling billions of dollars from the Palestinian people and hiding it in Swiss bank accounts. After his death, the accounts were found and estimated at some $3 billion. When Hamas won elections for the leadership in Gaza in 2006, it was partly because there was a perception on the part of the voters that the leaders of the PA were corrupt. And that was thought to have played a big part in the fact that Hamas won so handily. But the people of Gaza were soon to be disappointed because Hamas's rule over Gaza proved to be even more corrupt, and in fact, it was an unmitigated disaster for the people of Gaza. The corruption of the PA was nothing compared to the corruption of Hamas, whose neglect of the territory they were elected to rule, and their theft of the humanitarian aid designated for the people of Gaza was unparalleled. Much of the humanitarian aid that came for the people of Gaza, food, water, and medicine, for example, was diverted to the soldiers of Hamas, and concrete that was intended for use to rebuild the homes of Gazans that had been destroyed in previous wars were instead used to build terror tunnels under the border and into Israeli territory. Where Fatah leaders were accused of siphoning funds from ministry budgets, passing out patronage jobs, and accepting favors and gifts from suppliers and contractors, Hamas was accused of brutalizing Gaza residents, enforcing Sharia in this formerly largely secular enclave, stealing food, water, and medicine from the people of Gaza, and allowing the infrastructure of Gaza to fall into ruins. And this is the point. The rulers of Gaza and the West Bank are content to see their own people go hungry and sick and suffer, while they themselves are able to acquire personal wealth and pursue their deadly agenda, which is the destruction of the Jewish state. The PA also uses international pay, by the way, to pay stipends to the families of terrorists who have been imprisoned for the murder of Israelis. 
Israelis call the stipends pay for slay. And Israel is no longer willing to tolerate that policy, so it is now withholding tax revenues from the PA, revenues that are equivalent to the amount paid to terrorists or to their families to pay them for the martyrdom of their fathers and sons and brothers. But Abbas is, of course, a man of principle. I'm joking, of course. He has refused to accept partial payments from Israel. He has insisted that the PA is entitled to all the money, and if he can't get it all, he will refuse it all. Despite the fact that the PA is now facing a billion-dollar financing gap this year and the Palestinians in the West Bank have a 52% rate of unemployment. Abbas and his officials have refused to deal with the Trump administration since Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital in 2017 and his moving the U.S. embassy there a year ago. And as far as the meeting in Manama, the PA has rejected it out of hand. Abbas said, we will not accept any political initiative that does not call for the ending of Israeli occupation and establishing an independent and sovereign Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital, unquote. It's pretty specific. It's also a non-starter. He won't go to the talks. I guess no one ever told him that if you don't come to the table, you will have no control over the outcome. And as far as Israel is concerned, any plan that includes the division of Jerusalem once again will be unacceptable to them. Hamas and Fatah were both opposed to the meeting, and neither was represented there, as I have said. Abbas called the U.S. initiative and the negotiating team that represents it biased, and he also insisted that the political solution must come before the economic one. So let me put in one quick word about the negotiating team, and it's really a big deal, because in the Middle East, as in many other places around the world, everything is about perception and appearances. This is the team that is trying to negotiate a peace agreement between Israel, the Jewish state, and the Palestinians, who are mostly Muslims. But all three leading members of the American team, Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt, assistant to President Trump and special representative for international negotiations, and U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman, are all Jewish. Now, with all the goodwill in the world, and it may be that these three men are completely fair and unbiased. It is all about perception. And the perception here is that because they are Jewish, they cannot be fair and balanced. So the team that is trying to broker a peace agreement is completely distrusted by one of the sides. Not a good place to start. And this gets me back to the original point. We're not talking about economics. We're talking about ideology. We're talking about deeply held and opposing beliefs and about a political solution that doesn't exist. And so the conflict continues. President Trump has a good idea, but it won't work here. At least I don't think it will. Both sides say that this real estate is holy, and both sides say that it is theirs. So the workshop in Manama has already made history by its very existence, and it's a beginning. But will there ever be real peace in the Middle East? I honestly doubt it. With all of President Trump's goodwill and good ideas, I don't see the hope of success here. And it's a shame. Well, that's it for today, folks. I'm so glad you joined me for this last hour, and I hope I will see you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. 
I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.